Welcome to the Redeemer Community Church Podcast. The following audio is from Redeemer Community Church, located in Johnson City, Tennessee. We hope it will be encouraging to you as you listen. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Well, hey, um, real quick, I'm just going to throw this out there. Sometimes I recycle and reuse illustrations, and the particular one I'm about to say, I probably use once a year, and so you've heard it before, but I think it's such a good one, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna use it again, All right? So just a preface for today, I am using an illustration I have used before. All right, so in the movie, Talladega Nights, you know this is going already, all right? There, there's this scene where Ricky Bobby's praying over their, their dinner, where it's filled with, with Taco Bell and Domino's Pizza and and he's praying to baby Jesus. And over the course of the prayer, he's really emphasizing tiny Jesus, infant Jesus. And it doesn't take long for his wife to interrupt and say, you know, he grew up, right? And he's like, look, you can pray to, to teenage Jesus, to grown up Jesus, to bearded Jesus. Like I wanna pray to baby Jesus. And it, it causes this debate around the table of who Jesus is. And, and I'll, I'll I find it hilarious, but also a little bit sad because it's so real to the way that we view um, Jesus in our culture. So many of us, we think that Jesus is, there's like a creative license where I can have my Jesus, you can have your Jesus. And we think that, well, my Jesus would do this and someone else Jesus would do that. And we, we have these debates over what Jesus is like. Well, I contend that Jesus is real Jesus is knowable, which means there are concrete truths for us to grow in. And as we grow in those truths about Jesus, what happens is we will experience more and more of the transforming power of the gospel. So this is important stuff. If Jesus is real and knowable and there are concrete truths about him, as we grow in knowledge of that stuff, and as that knowledge moves from our head into our hearts, and to the way that we live our lives, we will experience more of the transforming power of Christ. This is how the gospel changes us. So if you got a Bible, we're gonna be in Colossians chapter one, right? There are three points. The first point is he is, right? That's gonna be verses 15 through 20. And you'll see that phrase, look at verses 15 and 16. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible visible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, right? It starts off with saying he is, which means these are not opinions. These are facts. The first thing we see is that he is the image of the invisible God. So think about this. We were created in the image of God. If you read Genesis 1, in God's image, we were created, right? We were created to be a reflection of who he is. But sin fractured that display. So none of us are accurately displaying who God is through the way that we live. So there's, there's always been some haziness since the fall of what it looks like to be like God until Jesus, when Jesus shows up, he is a perfect representation of who we were created to be. He perfectly reflects the invisible God. So if you wanna know what God is like, 
look to Jesus. If you wanna know how we can live in a way that looks like God, that reflects God's image, look to Jesus. So the first thing we see that he is the image of the invisible God. The next thing we see is that he is the firstborn of all creation. Now this is, I'm gonna geek out for a second here. I'm gonna do that a few times in this text. But this verse about Jesus being the firstborn of all creation is used by some religions that would claim to use the Bible, but are actually cults, okay? And these religions would say that Jesus is not God. He's not fully God. He was God's firstborn child. And they would go to this verse and say, look right here in Colossians 1, it says he was the firstborn. So you guys believe that Jesus and God are the same. They've existed for all eternity, but I'm telling you, this verse says otherwise. And we read that and we're like, huh. I mean, it's clear, it's right there in Colossians. How do I respond to that? Right, well, let me explain to you. There are two ways the phrase or the term firstborn can be used. One is birth order. Like my firstborn child is Ruthie Lou Martin. She's my firstborn. But another way the word firstborn is used throughout scripture is not in reference to birth order, but to status, Okay, so for instance, when God calls Israel and talks about Israel, which is a nation, he says that Israel is his firstborn. Is Israel the first nation? No, there are other nations that precede Israel. But what he is saying is that they have a status in his eyes that is above all other nations. And so when it says that Christ is the firstborn, it's saying that Jesus outranks all things in creation. It's not about birth order. This firstborn is about Jesus's status. His status is first and above all else, right? So this is not about Jesus being created. This is about Jesus being above all, outranking everything in creation, right? Continuing on. It says that all things were created, right? All things were created by him. All things were created through him. All things were created for him, which means that creation's aim is to make much of Jesus. So God gives us good things to enjoy. Like if you go out to the lake and enjoy the water and the mountains, if you go on a hike and enjoy the trail, if you enjoy good food and you're a foodie and you just like to sit down at a table and and experience the flavors, all that is God's good gift, but it's ultimate purpose. Everything's ultimate purpose is to make much of Jesus because all of creation is for him. Verse 17, you'll see that phrase again. He is, it's driving home the point of the facts about Jesus. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. So when it says he's before all things, that's saying he's eternal, not created, but he has existed in all eternity. So he is eternal, he's before all things. Then it says that he holds all things together. I love this. I love this, I love it, I love it. Let me explain to you why. So many people, they think that God, if they, if they believe in God, they think that God created the world. Just boom, he creates it. And then he kind of steps back and just lets it unfold. Or he's like, okay, let's see what happens with creation. Like, ooh, didn't they do that? Like, whoa, 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 they did that. Or that God's just like, hey, this is one universe, go do your thing. And then he just kind of turns his back on it and just continues to do his thing. And we think that God is distant and disinterested in our lives. 
So many of us think that God has more important things to do than to care about me. But when we see that he holds all things together, this is saying that Jesus is like divine glue. This is saying that Jesus is like a spiritual gravity. This is saying that Jesus is not distant and disinterested with his creation, but he is present and active. And you, as his creation, God is always present. He's always active and near in your life. He deeply cares about his creation, which includes you. God loves you and cares about you. He's not distant and disinterested, but he is in pursuit. Like that's good news. So in Jesus, he holds all things together. He's the spiritual glue of the universe. All right, then the next thing we see in verse 18, it says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. All right, when it says that he's the firstborn from the dead, some people look at that and they're like, well, I mean, like, okay, so Jesus came to die and he's the first one to raise from the dead. And then you read the gospels and you're like, wait, wait, other people rose to, back to life before him. I mean, John, John 11, Lazarus. Right, like he comes back to life. You know, like there's the, the, the daughter that he takes by the hand and, and it's like, he's like, she's just sleeping, get up, but everyone knows she's dead. Like there are multiple times in the Bible where Jesus brings people back to life. So did, was Jesus really the first to come back to life? Was he really, the, and I've, I've had, I had a small group leader text me this one night, just like, it's like our small, small groups are wrestling with this. I was like, well, here's the difference. There's resuscitation and there's resurrection. You see, resuscitation is when people come back to life, but they die again. Resurrection is when someone comes back to life and never dies again. So Jesus wasn't the first to be resuscitated. He was the first to be resurrected. He's the first to come back to life where he will never die again because life now is eternal, right? So he is the firstborn of the dead or firstborn of the first one to come back to life in a resurrected form. But I love that it says he is preeminent. The, the heading of my text says the preeminence of Christ. The preeminence, um, the preeminence means the greatest. Like what in the world does preeminent mean? It means the greatest. Now I, I went to a seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And if you were to ask someone in Louisville, who's the greatest, they would say Muhammad Ali. Right, that's his hometown. That's his birthplace. He's the greatest. The champ is here, like like the great boxer. And throughout sports history, at least at least in recent history, there's all these debates about who's the goat, right? Who's the greatest of all time? Like, is it Michael Jordan or LeBron? Like, is it Tom Brady? Yes. Like, it, it's that's defined, right? Like, there's all these. But here's the deal: when you think about greatness. Right, whatever it is, and whatever whatever um, profession that someone is in, or whatever whatever sphere someone's in, human greatness. Right, the the greatness that we see on the field or in the world that we live in is just a poor imitation of the greatness of Christ. Like He is the greatest. He is preeminent. All right, look at verses nineteen and twenty. It says, "For in Him." All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. All right, so when it says the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, that's not 50% of God was pleased to dwell. Some people believe that Jesus was 50-50. He's half God, half man. No, he was fully God and fully man. Okay, so, so the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then it says that, that he came to reconcile. This is awesome. It means that God's intended purpose for creation 
is not to destroy it. He's not like, I'm just gonna start over. You guys messed it all up. Like, let's just wipe it out and and start over. No, his, his ultimate purpose is reconciliation, to make things the way that they were created to be before sin entered the world. So he has come to reconcile all things. He has come to make all things right. Now, some people will look at verse 20 and they use it to push a doctrine that we would call universalism. So universalism is where everyone ultimately gets into heaven. Maybe one person's path is Gandhi. Maybe one person's path is Muhammad. Maybe one person's path is meditation. Like, and so they think like, well, look, whether, whatever you believe, ultimately all things, what does all mean? All, all things are gonna be reconciled back to God. And so at the end of the day, no matter what people believed, love ultimately wins and everyone ultimately gets to heaven. And people will use this verse to push that doctrine. And so if you get to that verse and you're like, I mean, it does say all things. Like, how do, we, how do we deal with that? Does this mean that all things ultimately end up in the new heaven and new earth, no matter how messed up they were, how wicked they were, whether they trusted in Jesus or didn't trust in Jesus? Well, let me explain this. Um, when it says all things, right, when all things would be reconciled to him, right, the, the question is, is that all things now or all things in the future? Okay, all things now are all things in the future. And so when it uses this language of whether on earth or in heaven, okay, if you were to read Philippians 2 verse 10, Paul, who wrote Colossians, talks about there's gonna be a day in the future when every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So in the future, on that day, every tongue, all right, every tongue in heaven, on earth, and under earth. Now, if you read verse 20, it says on earth or in heaven, but it makes no mention of under earth. It's looking like, as we read this, that there's gonna be a day when there's a separation, where, where there are some things that are brought into the new heavens and new earth, and there are other things that will not be there. And the things that are in the new heavens and new earth will be reconciled to God, but the things that are separated from him will be eternally separated from him. So this isn't about the doctrine of universalism. This is, the, this is about how all things in the new heaven and new earth will be reconciled to him. And those things that are not part of the new heaven and new earth will be eternally separated from him. So this is not a doctrine of universalism being pushed in verse 20. All right, that was, that was for free. So the first few verses, verses five through 20, are this beautiful poem. It was written in a way that was meant to be read in church, like a worship song, as it talks about who Christ is. All right, so the first thing I want you to know today is who he is. The next thing I want you to know is who you were. All right, so point one, who he is. Point two, who you were, verse 21. It says, in you who once were. All right, you were, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. This is talking about who we were before Christ. Before we knew Christ, we were people who were alienated. What does that mean? It means to be separated, right? So sin separates us from God's grace and love and puts us in the path of his justice and wrath. Right? It says we're hostile in mind, which means that our natural inclination is not to follow God's lead, but to push against it. Our natural human inclination isn't to be like, I wanna follow God. I want him to be the ruler of my life. I would love to bow to him and worship him and everything. No, our natural inclination is to say, I think I could do better. 
Or our natural inclination is to go, God, I know you said that, but I think I might know a better way. And so that hostility in mind leads to, because the things that you believe drive the things that you do, that hostility in mind leads to doing evil deeds. And so this is the bad news, right? So in light of who Christ is, who we were is that we were sinners. We were enemies of God. We were people that were rebelling against him and pushing against his intentions. That's just who we naturally are. Like that's who we were, right? That's the bad news. But the gospel is good news. So what is the good news? Verse 22 will show us the third point, All right? So point one, he is. Point two, you were. Point three, he has and you are. Right? Point three, he has and you are. Look at verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present to you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So what did Jesus do? He died for our sins to make us right with God. Jesus died for our sins to make us right with God. I'm gonna go off on a rant here. I don't know what to call it. In my, in my manuscript, when I type it out, I was like, important point? Like, like, I don't know what to call this, but this is something that's important for us in a cultural moment, okay? Because I am listening into culture. I'm listening to people responding to Christianity. This isn't necessarily new, but it's something that's picking up steam. So when we talk about Jesus dying for our sins, if you grew up in church, you're like, yeah, that's kind of the, it's the gospel. But if you did not grow up in church, or if you were in a season of maybe questioning your faith and questioning the things that you grew up believing, you might hear that, doesn't this seem like divine child abuse? Like some people would say like, I won't follow that God. If that's who God is, if God was angry and because he was angry, he killed his son, like that's messed up. I don't want anything to do with that. Like that's this, that just feels like divine child abuse. Like, no, thank you. I'm hearing people respond to the gospel with that accusation. That this feels, that doesn't feel like love, that feels jacked up. And so maybe that's where you are, right? And so let me just, let me pause because I feel like I got a little, like a little, Intense there, right? Like, like if you are questioning this, you're like, I don't listen to that guy. Like, he's mad. Um, so let's soften here for a second because, because maybe you're questioning that and you're, in a, you're actually in a really tough spot right now. And you're like, actually, Jeff, I am wrestling with that. And the last thing I need is someone to cram something down my throat that I've been told my whole life. So let me, let me pause for a second here because if that's a question you have, if that's a question that you've been wrestling with, we need to know what we just read in verses 15 through 20, that Jesus is God. Jesus isn't a helpless victim. You see, this, 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 this push to say that this is divine child abuse sees Jesus as a helpless victim, but he's not a helpless victim. He's God, fully God, but he's also fully man. So Jesus on the cross is fully God, and he is an adult man with the free choice as human and with the ability as God to walk away. So at the cross, he's not a helpless victim. He's a grown man with the fullness of God that he has the power just to walk away from this moment. But he doesn't walk away. He goes to the cross because he's our savior. You see, this is God taking the price that God put 
on the, on the sin. Like this is not divine child abuse. This is not a helpless victim. This is God incarnate, a full grown man that freely chose to go to the cross on our behalf to save us from our sins. And that's why this is such beautiful news. Jesus died for our sins, not to be punished by some angry father, but because he loves us and took the price and died the death that we deserved. That's the good news of the gospel. And what results from that is that who we now are, that because of that, we are presented to God as holy and blameless and above reproach, which means that God doesn't see us in our sin. He doesn't see us as who we once were, hostile and alienated and, and doing evil deeds. He sees us as holy. Think about that. That's why I love reading Paul's letters because when he writes to these different churches, he always says to the saints, to the saints at Philippi, to the saints at Ephesus, to the saints in Galatia, because he wants people to know that is their new identity. So if, if you write this down, if you're a note taker or try to commit it to memory or type it in your phone, as a follower of Christ, sin describes some of what you still do, but saint defines all of who you are in Christ. You see, yes, we will still struggle with sin this side of eternity. So sin still describes some of the things that we do, but when we know that who we are in Christ, we can rest assured that saint defines all of who we are. That's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful news. Okay, and so we've seen who Christ is. We've seen who we were and we've seen what he has done and who we now are, All right? So, so what do we do with that? What do we do with this knowledge? Well, the hope is, is that knowledge moves not just from our heads, but into our hearts and then into the way that we live. And something I've been, I've been thinking about, and I shared it with some friends on Friday, is I call it road trip Jesus, I think this is, this is the way that a lot of us approach Jesus. It's road trip Jesus. Okay, so um, I grew up mostly in Texas. And so that's a, that's a haul of a drive. Like you have, it's, half of it's in Tennessee. But, like, but when you drive there, it's a long drive. So let's say that you, you catch wind that I'm going to Texas in June. And you're like, can I bum a ride? You're like, I heard you're going to Texas. Can I tag along? Like that, oh, like Where? Are you going to El Paso? Like, cause that's like a, a whole day to my trip. Are you going to Dallas, Houston, Austin? Like where are you going to Waco? Gotta see Chip and Joanna. Like, I don't know where you're going, but let's say like, but depending on what part of Texas you're going to, that could add a lot to my trip. And so if you're on my way, I might be like, yeah, hop in. Like hop in because it's on my way. I'll drop you off on the side of the highway, eat some Chipotle or something. Like we'll rendezvous with someone. Like, you should, like let's do it. But if you're out of my way, I'm like, I'm sorry, it's just not gonna work, right? As long as it's convenient for me, I'll let you jump in the car. But if it's inconvenient, I'll push back. And I think a lot of us, we follow Jesus as long as it's convenient for us. It's like, yeah, I'll do what Jesus says as long as it doesn't make me detour on my trip. I'll follow Jesus as long as it doesn't make me detour. But that's, that's not what we see here when we look at who Christ is. Because if Jesus reigns over all things and reconciles all things, then every aspect of our lives should come under his rule, okay? It's not a convenience thing. It's an all of life thing. If Jesus reigns over all things and reconciles all things, then every aspect of our lives 
should come under his rule. Look at how this text ends in verse 23. It says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. It ends with a warning. This text ends with a warning, which says that authentic faith, here's, here's like if we were to make this layman's terms and just make it sound more like the way we speak. Authentic faith doesn't say, I'll take Jesus to escape hell, but other than that, I'm gonna live my life how I want. That's not authentic faith. Authentic faith doesn't say, I'll take Jesus so I don't go to hell one day, but other than that, I'm just gonna live my life, my road trip, right? That's not what authentic faith says. The warning here shows us that authentic faith says, I don't just want to get to Jesus when I die. I want to be like Jesus as I live. You see, there is authentic faith and inauthentic faith. Authentic faith doesn't just say, I want Jesus to get to heaven. It says, no, I wanna be like Jesus as I live. And I love like that striving to be like Jesus. Notice where it comes in the pattern. It comes after we're called holy, blameless, and above reproach. That's a gospel rhythm that we see from all of scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. Our identity is given first, and then the command of how to live is given second, which means we work from our identity in Christ, not for it. So from a position of being holy, from a position of being blameless and above reproach, we strive to be like Jesus as we live if our faith is authentic. But here's the deal. I think a lot of us will struggle to follow Jesus' lead. I think a lot of us were like, this is hard. Like, like at the end of the day, I know what I should do, but then I, I don't do that. And it's like this pattern in life. And you're like, am I really changing or am I just kind of stuck on this treadmill? Am I stuck in this rut, right? I think about um, when I was in high school, I remember the, the first day I got my TI-83 calculator. And they're probably like 87 now. I don't know what numbers are, but like back then. And, and so like I used that thing for algebra and I got, I got learned how to solve matrix C's and like different things. Like then I went to college and like I used it for calculus and different like, but I, I had that TI-83 calculator and I downloaded games onto it. You know, like I had that thing, I'd mash it. I could work that thing like a wizard. But then I graduated college and I had knowledge of how to work the calculator until I finished up my degree and like after college, I don't, I've never used that thing again. It's like in a box, probably in my mom's closet. Like, I don't know like where it exists anymore, it's gone, right? So I had the knowledge to pass the tests. And once I passed the test, I've moved on from it and never revisited it again. Some people, that's how they treat Jesus. Like I want enough of Jesus to pass the entrance exam to heaven. And you think once you pass the test, you move on right? That you've got the knowledge to get to heaven and then you just kind of move on and keep living your life. But you see, the gospel's not like a TI-83 calculator. It's like a relationship. I think about my wife, Lucy. Um, there was an old couple that invested in us when we were engaged, Harry and Eloise Davis. She went by Wheezy, loved her. Um, and so, so one day I was sitting on her back porch, Lucy wasn't there. And I was like, I just wanna have a marriage like you guys. Like, what, what's one piece of advice that you could give me? And Harry, he goes, Jeff, I still date Wheezy. And he's like, even in our 90s, he's, I always ask her, tell me something I don't know. Keep learning about your wife. 
And so for me and Lucy, sometimes on a date, it's like, just tell me something I don't know. (laughs) And like, sometimes there's like second grade, like this boy named Peter picked on me. I'm like, what in the heck? Who's Peter? Let's find this guy. Like, I don't, I got, but like, there's, there's something. And it's like, like, but that relationship, I don't know enough of Lucy just to be like, all right, we're good. I'm going to move on. It's like, no, I keep growing in my relationship. And like, and seeing Harry and Eloise who lived long, long lives before they died, like they would say that even on deathbeds, you still have things to learn. You see, Jesus isn't something we move on from. He's something we grow deeper into. And so if you wanna experience the life-transforming power of the gospel, it's about growing deeper in knowledge of who he is, of who you were and what he has done. And so the language that we'll use, if you ever go through our partnership class, is we'll talk about, we wanna see God more holy. We wanna see our sin more vividly so we can see the cross more gloriously. You see, as we begin to see the holiness of God in more extremes, as we begin to see the depths of our sinfulness more vividly, then naturally we have to see the cross is bigger than that. And we'll be blown away by what he has done and who he has made us to now be. And when that knowledge of who he is and who he were and what he has done drives deep into our hearts, our relationship to God changes. You see, we, I don't know, like, I don't know if you guys, like some kids are weird um, and some kids are not. Like my kids are, my kids hate getting up in the morning. I don't know if that's normal. Like I go in, I'm like, get up, like shaking, I'm turning on lights. I'm like, my mom did this to me. And like, I'm like caught banging pots, you know, like, like and they're sacked out, right? Like, oh, I wanna get up. Like, this is miserable. Like, like, and then you finally get them up, right? But you know what never happens on Christmas day? <laughs> Like, 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 I'm passed out drooling because I'd, I'd like put some toys together and like, they're like, good morning, dad. Like, let's go downstairs. Like, do you have the video camera ready? Like, let's go. And I'm like, ah, I'm so tired. Like, it's not like, there's a difference between getting up because you have to and getting up because you want to. You see, when you grow in your knowledge of what's talked about in Colossians 1, about who Jesus is, who you were, what he has done and who you now are, your relationship to coming under the lordship of Christ, of of coming under his rule and his reign, isn't like getting up on a school day. It's like getting up on a Christmas morning. And that's what I want you guys to experience through the knowledge of Christ. So we're gonna help you do that this year through reading scripture. I hope you'll join. That's enough for today. So let me pray for us. Then we're gonna respond in worship. God, thank you for your word. God, what, what a beautiful and amazing and rich and, and just goldmine of a passage. Um, God, thank you for it. And we ask that we would be a people who continue to come back to mine out and to know more of who you are. God, to continue to learn things that we don't know. God, that, that we would be more amazed by the cross today than we were yesterday and that it wouldn't be knowledge that just sticks in our head, but that it would drive us to live lives that are lived in worship to you wherever we are, whether that's here in gathered worship, whether that's at our homes or in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, as we're driving, guys, ask that we would be a people who are, who are worshiping you and responding to you because of your great love. It's in your holy name we pray. Thank you so much for listening to this audio from Redeemer Community Church in Johnson City, Tennessee. You can connect with us and find out more information at RedeemerCommunity.com.